please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, which is on page 496 of the Bibles in the seatbacks. If you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible in the seatback as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want you can do for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Thus says God's word. Join me in praying this morning that we would hear well and that I would speak well so that you could hear well. Father, we thank you for the gift as we do each and every week of your word. Lord, it's truth, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the divide soul and spirit, discerns the thoughts and intentions of a man, of a woman. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that, that we do not come here today to read your word. We come here to be read by your word. And we pray that you would reveal to us who we are. We pray that you would reveal to us the true essence of worship, worship that pleases you and worship that that honors you rightly, God. God, we pray that as we see the beauty of true worship, that there would be no cost too high, no commitment too stringent, God, as we see the beauty of Christ and long to connect ourselves with that beauty and to and to to relish it and to to live in it God and to honor you and to glorify you as you are so worthy of honor and glory. So God, we thank you for that. God, I do pray that you would cause us all to be good hearers, Lord, that this word that is proclaimed that is scattered would fall on good soil and it would produce a crop of 30, 60, 100-fold, God. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would, as the psalmist said, make my tongue as the pen of a ready writer, Lord, that is able to communicate the truth of God without adding opinion or uh, prejudice to it, but, Lord, speaking the truth and the principle of your word just as you've given it to us in in the scriptures. And so, God, I thank you for that. I trust you for your help. 
And I ask that you would bless this time together that we have under the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As Tyler approached the platform to read the scripture, Ginger turned to me and said, Congratulations, you made it out of Mark 13. So... I, I, there were there were moments where I didn't think that would ever happen. Some of you are so glad I'm out of Mark 13. Others of you wish I'd lingered a little bit longer to make clarity on some of the things that I said. And um, I would love to have, a, have the opportunity to do that for you if we ever get that chance. Um, but last week we did finish five weeks uh, in the Olivet Discourse. Remember we call it that because this is a discussion Jesus had with his disciples. Um, he was telling them signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem, the overthrow of the temple. Um, And this cataclysmic event, remember this was the main point of everything we said, this cataclysmic event that would come to pass in AD 70 marked the end of the Old Covenant system of animal sacrifices, of temple worship, and it made way for the new and the better covenant. Now that should have gotten a enthusiastic response for you. You know why? Because you're the benefactors of that new and better covenant. And that the, the reason that should excite you, the reason that should stir your passions, your affections for Christ, is because it was this new and better covenant that opened the way for Gentiles like you and I to be counted among the people of God. Now, the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, his earthly story, will explain how this is accomplished. This is what Mark's going to use in chapter 14, 15, and 16. is going to show not just that the, the, uh, the old system, the old covenant would pass and the new covenant would come, but how that was accomplished. And so we read in the first verse of Mark 14, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Many of you will be familiar with the Passover. The Passover was the most sacred festival on the Jewish calendar, and it commemorated God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery. And if you'll remember how he did it, he did it by sending ten catastrophic plagues on the nation of Egypt, on the, the Pharaoh, their king, and and this all happened some 1,500 years before Christ made his appearing in Bethlehem. And these plagues saw the water of Egypt, including that which flowed through the Nile, turn to blood. It it saw subsequent plagues of frogs and gnats and flies filling the environment in Egypt. It saw the death of all the Egyptian livestock. It saw affliction on the people of Egypt with painful boils from head to toe. It saw devastating hailstorms and swarms of locusts that devastated their agriculture. And then, if all that wasn't enough, there was a darkness that covered the land of Egypt um, that, that the Bible describes in chilling terms as a darkness that could be felt. Now, the interesting thing about this is that God made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Where Israel lived, the people of Israel, in the land of Goshen, none of these things happened. And yet, in all of this, in all of these horrible plagues, um, Pharaoh would harden his heart repeatedly over and over again, and he would refuse to obey God's command to let his people Israel go free from their slavery. And so God promised one more plague. 
he would send his angel throughout all the houses of Egypt to put the firstborn of both man and beast to death. Yet God had told, this is where the, the idea, the celebration of the Passover comes from. God had told all the people of Israel to, uh, to slaughter a spotless, flawless male lamb and to dab the doorposts and the lintels of their home, so above their head and to the sides, with blood, with the blood of that sacrificed lamb. And in Exodus twelve thirteen, God makes a promise. He tells us what the significance of that blood adorning their doors was. And he says, the blood shall be a sign for you, speaking to Israel, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They would consume then, after after the sacrifice and adorning the, the, door, the doors of their homes, they would then consume the flesh of the lamb along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And they would be ready, they were told by God to be ready to leave in haste, have all of their robes on, their staff in their hand, everything ready to walk out the door. And having obeyed this ordinance, they walked out of Egypt freed by God and by his grace. And it was no accident that 1,500 years later, Christ's sufferings coincided with this feast. The blood that formed a cross on the doors of the Israelites' houses foreshadowed Christ's cross and Christ's blood. He was the Lamb, John the Baptist tells us, who would be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world, to save us from God's wrath. And the promise made concerning the sign of this blood stands as a reminder to all of God's people like you and I today. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the the blood of Jesus protects us from the wrath of God? And when the text speaks of this idea of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's actually, you know, it says it's still two days away. It actually points to two separate but connected events. The Passover commemoration that we described about the meal with the sacrificed lamb took place on the first night when this Passover lamb was sacrificed and consumed along with those bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And the Jewish families would sit around and, and, the, and the father, the husband in the household would retell the story of God's deliverance. And this was followed by a week-long feast of unleavened bread in which only unleavened bread was eaten. And Mark's saying that these events that he's about to describe for us in the longest chapter of Mark, chapter 14, he's saying that these events took place two days before the Passover meal inaugurated that week-long feast. And this means that these events probably happened on the Wednesday before Good Friday when Jesus was crucified. And this is what we read in the second half of verse 1. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For he, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The religious leaders, if, for those of you who have taken copious notes in the last over a year that we've been in the book of Mark, you will remember that the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, began to plan Jesus' demise all the way back in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 6. 
So we've gone 11 verses since at first we're first introduced to the idea that Jesus had caused the dominoes to fall and that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes were after him for blood. But Jesus, here's the problem for them. Jesus was very popular because of his healings, his miracles, his teachings with many of the common people. And therefore, the religious authorities were trying to be sneaky about how to arrest him, sneaky about how to put him to death, because they didn't want to cause a riot that would provoke the, the ire of Rome, which is exactly what happened, by the way, in AD 70, which we've been talking so much about. And they knew that the cost of, of a riot, of an uproar, would be tremendous for them, so they were trying not to have that happen. Now, at this time, every year, this time of Passover, Jerusalem was packed wall to wall with observant Jews who'd come from the farthest corners to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The the leaders didn't want to be on the wrong side of an angry mob that had assembled from all across Judea who had come to regard Jesus as a, a as a true prophet. Remember, there were those who said in Capernaum, they said, this man speaks with authority and not like one of our scribes. And so they knew that there was there was a popular opinion that could very well be against them if they proceeded. But some of you might be saying, well, we know how this story rolls out. They did arrest and kill Jesus during the feast. And here's why. God had proposed, or purposed rather, God had purposed to exalt his son as the Messiah of, the, of, the, of Israel, the king of Israel, during a time when all the children of Abraham were gathered near to witness it with their own two eyes. He had determined that through the common knowledge of, of these events, that people, everyone in the city was going to know what was going on with Jesus. And through the testimony of the, of the apostles, that many of the Hebrews would be saved. So everything remaining in Mark's gospel, as I said earlier, will be targeted towards explaining Christ's ministry as Israel's final and perfect Passover lamb who would be sacrificed and consumed in faith by God's true Israel, that their lives would be marked and preserved by his cleansing blood and that they would be delivered from slavery through God's grace. But... It seems that when we reach verse 3, instead of staying on that track, that Mark kind of takes a hard left and goes in a different direction. He veers into a random event that appears on the surface to have very little to do with Christ's impending sacrifice in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of, by the way, Bethany was on the Mount of Olives, so right outside of, of Jerusalem. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, while Mark doesn't identify for us this woman, John, the apostle, does. He says that it's Mary, the sister of Martha, the the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And they're gathered with Jesus for dinner at a house of a man named Simon. But that's not all we know about Simon. He's known to us as Simon the leper. Now, we know, we talked about this earlier, when Jesus healed lepers, lepers were absolutely forbidden to be a part of or to host a social gathering. And so 
we assume that perhaps this was a leper that Jesus had healed. And so being healed in gratitude, he invites Jesus and some of his friends into his house. Um, and while it would have been amazing for those at the, at the meal to hear his story of his healing and hear the gratitude, the worship he would offer to Jesus, that isn't what those in attendance would remember about this particular evening. Something is about to happen of which everyone present will take notice. While everyone's having dinner and, and sharing and I'm sure very high spirited conversation, Mary enters the room, which regardless of how we feel today was a major cultural faux pas. She was not supposed to be there. She broke every protocol of Jewish life in the first century. Men and women ate separately, and women were not allowed to interrupt the dinnertime conversation of the men except to serve the meal, and they were never invited to interact socially at the meal. That was considered a, a major breach of social norms. But Mary walks in, and she produces a translucent bottle, a beautiful bottle, containing 12 to 16 ounces of perfume. And Mark tells us that it was very costly. The text says that it was valued at 300 denarii. And this amounted to a year's wages for the average laborer in Judea at the time. Let that sink in. He has this bottle of perfume. It costs literally a year's wages. Consider for a moment what you make in one year. And imagine having one bottle of a precious perfume, a fluid, 12 to 16 ounces, and the entire value that you earn in one year was tied up in that one little bottle. Now, this was most likely either a family heirloom that had been passed down from generation to generation or something for which Mary, in some way or another, had saved for for some time. This makes, because of the value of this item, this substance, It makes what she did with it all the more puzzling to everyone in the dining area. She breaks the bottle open and she pours every single drop of it on Jesus' head. Now the bottle, you need to understand, was almost as precious as the ointment of itself. It had no pump on it like we'd have today. It didn't have a screw top on it like we might have today. It was completely sealed in the manufacture of it. In order to utilize the contents inside the jar, the jar had to be broken, broken open. And think of the amount that was in there. I said 12 to 16 ounces, what most people believe. Most women here today, probably when you buy perfume, you buy it maybe in a one-ounce bottle. And because of the cost of, of a good fragrance, you generally, when you put it on, you dab a little bit behind your ears, maybe a couple of drops on your wrist. She takes the entire 12 to 16-ounce bottle and pours it on Jesus' head. She does not spare it at all. Mary poured the entire contents on his head, and it ran down his hair. It ran onto his beard, it ran down his robes, and all the way to his feet. In fact, in John's account that I mentioned earlier, he says that Mary anointed his feet. Mark tells us that she anointed his head. Are we seeing some contradiction in the text here? Not at all. There was so much perfume that when she anointed his head, she also anointed his feet. It covered him. Now think about that. 
if he's covered head to toe in the sweet-smelling fragrance, can you imagine the beautiful aroma that not only clung to the person of Jesus, but also wafted off of him and it filled every nook and every cranny of the house where they were. The scent probably remained on him because of the sheer amount of it at the Last Supper as he was sharing the meal with his disciples. As he, in agony, prayed in the garden, there was probably hints of that fragrance that those around him could still smell. And during his his trial before Caiaphas and then before Pilate, he could probably still make out just traces of that scent. Perhaps as he made up his way to made his way up Golgotha to die for the sins of the world, those who he passed by could still detect just a little bit of that fragrance. And doesn't that remind us of the sweet smell of grace that comes through Jesus everywhere he goes? Through his sufferings, through his resurrection, through his prayers and intercession, the sweet smell of Jesus. The sweet smell of his grace just permeates the environment. This smell was a reminder of the beauty that would underlie all of his terrible anguish, all of his horrible suffering that lay in his path, and that he has to endure in just two short days from this time. But the beauty of what was happening, as is so often the case, was completely lost on the guests at dinner. While this woman in a very costly way, is pouring out her heart in, in something that could not be described as less than worship. Those around her were scoffing and sighing to themselves. The Bible tells us there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, years' wages, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Those present, sitting there at dinner, enjoying the moment, they saw no act of adoration. They didn't see any act of devotion. They saw no act of worship. They saw an act of unthriftiness, of waste. They couldn't believe she would so casually dispose of something that cost that much. Think about the money again that you make in one year. Think about it. How would you feel if you saw someone take that amount of money and expend it for something that you saw was frivolous in just a few seconds? Would your jaw not drop? Would you not gasp yourself? Would you may not speak to yourself indignantly? But... Like a lot of us in the religious community, they were too refined and too respectable to express their offense right in front of Jesus audibly. So the text said that they said it to themselves, but indignantly. That's what, this is what that looks like. When you roll your, uh, when you fold your arms and just shake your head. And you're saying a lot, but you're not saying a single word. Do you follow me? And after stewing it over and, and, and being so offended, they condescendedly scolded her audibly for her exhibition of extravagance. 
R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Mark, points out that there is a violence in the Greek language that is lost on our English translations. He says that, in his words, their irritation rose to the level of fury that she had done this. It wasn't theirs. Frankly, it wasn't any of their business. But they were enraged because Mary had the audacity to do what she had done. They could see no reason for this inexcusable extravagance. And so, to portray themselves, again, I think we might have some experience with this, to portray themselves as more noble than they actually were, they used charity as the grounds for their offense. What about the poor, they said. Look at this. Jesus is dripping in a year's worth of money, and there's poor people all around us. Just hungry, Starving kids in China. You know, that's what our parents always said. And this is the basis. Charity is the basis they use to shame this generous woman for her loving action. And John, though, so remember, Mark's got his lens a little wider than John does. John focuses in for us. And this is how John records this exact same event in chapter 12, verse 4. He says this, But Judas Iscariot, anybody remember that name? Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, not some of them, Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John adds some commentary in verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas saw this perfume dripping down Jesus in this woman's act of devotion. And he saw, man, that's money I can never put into the till so I can dip into. See, Judas's envy that night shamed this woman. And the same envy would soon so drive him that he would betray Christ himself. When a man has a sin in his heart, which he is unwilling to acknowledge, unwilling to crucify, unwilling to put to death, there is no hiding it forever. Please hear me on that. Whatever sin you're harboring this morning and excusing, whatever sin has taken such a control of your heart that you it, it shapes the way you view the world around you. You don't see an act of worship. You see an act of waste. That sin can't stay hidden forever. See, Judas played his hand here, and he showed that what he treasured was money. That's what he treasured. And, and he, he, it drove him to the sins of which he was capable, even denying and betraying the Lord Jesus. Now, our text next week, we're not going to focus too much on that today, because our text next week will show how this was the beginning of Judas's end. Verse 6, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now Jesus 
responds to the drama unfolding around him at dinner in three distinct ways. The first one is incredibly encouraging to me. It's incredibly encouraging to any of us who would make our stand for Christ and suffer any level of persecution for us, for it. Any of us who would lose ourselves in worship and be mocked by this world or even sometimes sadly within the church for it, this first thing that Jesus does is so comforting. Because you know why? What Jesus does is he comes to her defense with three words. Leave her alone. Wow. Can you imagine... You know, when I was younger, well, I still have one, but when I was younger, I'd, you know, sometimes get in trouble at school. And I had a, I had a big brother who on a couple of occasions, um, came to my persecutors and he said, leave them alone. You cannot, I can't tell you, I can't describe for you how much that probably actually made me more of a little punk because I thought I had protection. But, but, um, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, um, I knew I was safe because someone bigger than both of us, my persecutor or me, was going to defend me. Can you imagine if Jesus says, leave her alone? Leave him alone. Jesus, with those three words, puts a stop to their self-righteous complaining, because that's all it was, and all the indignities that they're willing to perpetrate upon this woman. When I read this this week, it reminded me of a hymn that, you know, Many churches have sung for years. Some still do. We, uh, we don't sing it around here. But, um, and, and I think the fourth stanza of it goes like this. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Anybody remember that song? Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. To him that overcometh, a crown of life shall be. And he with the King of glory, shall reign eternally. When we are determined to despise cultural approval for the sake of worship, there's one thing I can guarantee you. You receive Christ's recognition. Christ stands behind those who stand up for him. As Stephen was being killed in Acts chapter 7 for the testimony of Jesus. And those who he preached to were enraged and picked up rocks to put him to death. He looked into the heavens and saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And it served as an encouragement to him to remain faithful even unto his death, he said, he, he, he placed his spirit into the hands and said, do, into the hands of God and he said, do not hold this against their charge. Let me encourage you today, if you're in a place in work where you're standing up and making hard stands, you know, refusing to bow to the golden idols of this age, let me remind you that though the world forsakes, though it misunderstands, though it ridicules, though it disregards true worshipers, Christ looks to them. And he promises, he promises to remain near to them. Though her accusers grumbled indignantly within themselves. Watch this. They're doing what they're doing within themselves, right? Well, Christ speaks up for Mary boldly and publicly. He didn't do anything within himself. He spoke it out. His rebuke 
left such a sting that it drove Jesus into the chambers of the high priest to cut a deal for Jesus' life. I don't think Jesus was unclear about what he was saying in regard to Mary, do you? Second, that's the first thing he did. He he came to her defense. Second, he teaches these grumblers about real value. I had a, a friend one time who um, came to a meeting it was in our church we were at years and years ago, and he was teaching some things about, you know, wise finance management, and he brought a stock certificate for some company I can't remember, and he said, he said um, uh, you know, and then he held up a little pocket knife, and he said, which one of this has more worth and which one has more value? And he, and he said, you know, the stock certificate was worth a few hundred bucks or something like that. And he said, he said, this one has more, uh, worth, but he says, this thing, he holds up this little pocket knife, he says, this thing has more value. And, and he said, he told this story, this uh, wonderful story about his grandfather who was very precious to him and had died, had given him this, this pocket knife. And it's a really sweet story. And he taught us in that, that worth and value, financially especially, are not always the same thing. Amen? See, here's, here's what happened. And we've got to be really careful that these types of things don't happen to us. The guys that were grumbling, Judas in particular, thought that what was inside the bottle was more valuable than the one it was poured on. They thought that the, that the, the substance was more important, more precious, more valuable, more worthy than the one that it would anoint. In an eternal perspective, that perfume was worthless until it touched the Son of God. They thought it could be used for something more important, but what exactly would that be? The disciples didn't mind that a gift was being given at all, as long as they had final managerial authority over the way it was being used. Yikes. I'll give it, but I'm going to tell you how to use it. They didn't understand that whatever is lavished on Christ for his glory is never wasted. Whether it's our very lives, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, it doesn't matter. If it's lavished on Christ, it's never wasted. Can somebody say amen to that? How often do we limit ourselves? Or worse, how often do we limit others? Because we fundamentally fail to understand the inexpressible worth of Christ. If our children, let me give you an example. Think about your kiddos. If our children felt called, if they came to you this afternoon and said, Hey, I want you to know I feel called to foreign missions. And not only do I feel called to foreign missions, I feel called to make my way into a completely hostile country. I want to go to Saudi Arabia. I want to go to northern Nigeria. I want to go to a place like North Korea and preach the gospel. If we're honest... You've thought about this child, you've educated this child, you've prepared this child to go to college, make a lot of money, have a happy marriage, make a lot of grandbabies for you. How many of us, if we're really honest, would consider it a waste 
that they chose not to be doctors and lawyers? What if they went to one of those hostile places, hostile to the gospel, and they died on that mission field, victims of that hostility? Would you be filled with rage and anger, judging their lives as futile, judging their lives as meaningless? What if you yourself missed out on the opportunity of RVing around the country in your retirement just because you thought it was more important to lend your wisdom and lend your experience to young people desperate to be discipled in the gospel in a local church? If you gave up that dream, would you feel like you'd been ripped off? How do you, speaking for anybody else in this room, how do you define the important, the valuable, the meaningful things in life? If living for Christ and his glory, if expending ourselves, every bit of us, in unending worship isn't the main thrust of our lives, listen to me carefully, our metrics of what the good life is, are seriously, seriously flawed. Thirdly, Jesus explains the purpose of this gift that Mary has given. He's already described what Mary has done, her act, as an act of worship. He states that she had done to him a beautiful thing. And isn't that what worship always is when it's pure? It's a beautiful thing done to Jesus. It's the acknowledgement of his infinite value. He's the recipient of our lavish devotion. And with those kind of words, describe your worship of him this very morning. Were you lost in his beauty and majesty, expending everything you are, the total contents of your being, On him. Did your soul cry out within you that Jesus was worthy of your most costly praise? A complete surrender of everything. How would our moments together as the people of God be transformed if we came into our church with Mary's heart to humble herself, to ignore cultural protocols and to give herself unsparingly to God? that he might be glorified, that he might be magnified. Do you know what the word magnified means? Everybody's had a magnifying glass. It means to see him bigger. Don't Make no mistake about it. We don't make God bigger, but because of our narrow, sin-stained view, we see him smaller. And to magnify him means to see him bigger. But there was a purpose, even beyond the worship, there was a purpose of Mary's gift that underlied her worship. Jesus said that she had anointed his body beforehand for burial. If you'll remember the story that's coming up in a few weeks, Jesus was buried quickly after his crucifixion. Because of Sabbath regulations on the Jews, there was no time to embalm him whatsoever. And Luke's gospel says that the women who found his empty tomb had gone uh, to him to care for his body in this way. They were bringing spices with them that they had prepared beforehand, the text tells us. But... By the prompting of the Holy Spirit, check out how cool this is. By the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Mary recognized that his body must first be prepared beforehand because it wouldn't happen afterwards. 
She understood in her spirit that something dramatic was about to happen and she was ready for it. She was willing to do whatever was necessary to see that God's kingdom purposes through Christ were fulfilled. Listen, let me ask you another question. What opportunities do we miss to play a role in God's great work because we're dull and insensitive to what his word says, what his spirit leads? What would we contribute to in the unfolding of his story in our circles of influence if we had the heart of ready and willing worshipers? Ready to do whatever, to make whatever testimony, to offer any sacrifice. Mark concludes our text today by saying, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now listen, that's an interesting promise. Christ not only commended her worship, but he said it would be remembered in perpetuity. Now, think about what he just said. Think about what Jesus just said. Think about that. This promise made by Jesus is being kept by Jesus as I preach this text this morning. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years later, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, had made a promise to this lady that what she had done will never be forgotten. And it will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is preached. And guess what? 2,000 years later, here I am, standing at the pulpit of Northridge Life Church, proving that God keeps his word. Because I just told you what this woman did. Isn't that kind of cool? Some of you? Do you understand that there is no prayer that you can pray, there's no offering that you can make, there's no life given in the service of God that is ever forgotten in the mind of God. He has written all these things in a book, and those who have been found faithful in the end will hear him say on the day that that book is read, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. So, what are we holding back this morning? What could bring glory to God that is being clasped by our gripping fists? Is it your reputation? Is it your time? Is it your family? Is it your plans for the future? Is it your money and possessions? Open your hands today. Just open them up by faith so that God is glorified. And in return, you see how he remembers, how he makes memorials for his children. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word again. God, we pray that you would spare us from just walking away from what you've said with no introspection to what it means to us. Lord, every one of us in our lives, whether it's in our reputation, our family, our possessions, we all have a little alabaster jar, God. God, that we're saving, we're we're protecting from waste or damage. And God, I pray that you would call us today, call people here specifically 
to know by the revelation of your spirit what that alabaster jar is and to be willing to break it open, to release the fragrance of worship and pour it out on you, God, to spill it all out on you so that you carry the the fragrance of our worship, Lord God. Pray for that. God, challenge us to worship selflessly, to lay our lives down, to not turn back, but to say, if God is worthy at all, he is worthy of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I could have our communion helpers come and prepare to serve this morning. We... um, have this great encouragement from the word in Romans chapter 8 it tells us that if our God did not spare his own son how with him how will he not with him freely give us all things some of you it might sound a little heavy handed to talk about full on sacrificial total life worship like I talked about this morning But remember, when we talk about that, we are only walking in the steps of Christ who held nothing back for us, not a single thing. And this is the great, the great emblems of that sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood. And now he uses these same elements through a spiritual act of the Holy Spirit to connect us with his risen body and fellowship with him knowing that he is raised and that nothing will be withheld from his children whom he loves. And so I I just want to encourage you to come and receive these elements. Before you do, I just want to say, as we say so frequently, that if you're not a Christian, if you are living a life that is contrary to Jesus Christ, hear me clearly, don't come this morning. Don't, Don't come to this table and profane it and profane yourself this is, this is for true worshipers of Jesus. Not perfect worshipers. None of us could come if that were the case. But for true worshipers. And if your life is a mockery of worship, then don't come. But here's the deal. We tell you all the time, we're praying for you. We want you to know the joy of laying your life completely along with everything you are, everything you have, everything you ever will be at the feet of Jesus, because you will not know joy till you do that. You might know simple pleasures in life, passing pleasures of sin is what the Bible calls them. You will never know true joy. And so please take heed of these words. The Bible says that those who drink uh, without, uh, you know, unworthily, that they, they drink condemnation on themselves. I do not want that to be the case with anybody. So, But for the rest of you, Sometimes when you say that heavy stuff, it kind of brings everybody down. For the rest of you, come joyfully. Everything has been given for you. Everything. Christ has spared no expense to bring you into his kingdom, to make you his child. And so come joyfully and partake gladly and and enjoy what Christ has provided. You can come, receive the elements, and then we'll take them together in just a moment when you return to your seats. Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you. Thank you for the inexpressible gift of Jesus. Thank you for just bankrupting all the vaults of heaven for our salvation, God. And God, we know that that there is nothing that you will not freely grant to your children. All the grace that we need, all the, the, the faith that we need to make it through this journey, this sojourning to see your face, Lord. And you will carry us safely, God. You have provided everything we need. Lord, let that reminder just inspire us to lay everything down for you. All of the things we treasure so much that in the end will prove to be nothing but ashes and dust, Lord God. And so, Lord, help us to cling to you as our only true treasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to give you this reminder as a benediction from Scripture. And everyone who has left houses and or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.